0: Well, hey, Harvest. Pastor Ray here, and I have the great privilege of introducing to you today our guest speaker who's going to be bringing us God's Word this morning. His name is Lucas Burton, and he comes from Harvest Bible Chapel, Oakville, where he's been attending for the last 11 years and recently uh, finished off a three-year internship there, all while doing his Masters of Divinity at McMaster School of Divinity. And something very exciting, in two weeks from now, Lucas is going to be heading over to Denmark for a one-year missionary placement in Copenhagen. So let's be sure to keep him in our prayers, and let's give him a warm Harvest Ottawa welcome this morning. Good morning, folks. Please grab a seat. As Pastor Ray said, my name is uh, Lucas Burton, and I've had the blessing of attending Harvest Oakville with my family for the past 11 years. I can't tell you how excited and thankful I am for the opportunity to be with you here this morning. And before I say anything else, I do want to let you know, on behalf of the elders and the men and women of our church at Harvest Oakville, um, just how how excited we are for what God is doing here in Ottawa and what he's doing here in this church and also through this church. Um, I remember when I first heard just the stirrings of the possibility of a Harvest Ottawa church plant a few years ago and then learned after that that that's something that Pastor Ray would be a part of leading I was so excited to think about how God has set his sights I pray in a continually new way on our nation's capital and so we really are so excited and so thankful for what God is doing and we're thankful that you get to be a part of that as well I also have to let you know that I have been so deeply encouraged over the last number of years as I've had the chance to interact with Pastor Ray and get to know him. Um, In every one of my conversations, I've just walked away encouraged. And as I think about the conversations that we shared leading up to this weekend, one thing that just became so, so apparent to me was the fact that Pastor Ray really, really loves you guys. He really does sincerely care for you, and his desire is very much that you would grow in your knowledge and your experience of, of Jesus Christ and what it means to follow him. And so, if I can just encourage you in response to that in one way, it would be to please pray for Pastor Ray. Please pray for him now as he has some time off with his family to rest, to be refreshed for a new ministry year, but, but just throughout the year, uh, I, I can't encourage you enough to be praying for him and the other leaders of your church. Um, I'm sure if he was here, he would quickly say yes and amen, we need the prayer, and it, uh, it is certainly felt by him. So with that, I want to thank him as well as the elders and leaders of your church for the opportunity to be with you here this morning. It's really an honor to open God's word with you. The title of the message that I have to share with you this morning is this, Life on Mission. Life on Mission. And I don't know about you, but if you were to take a survey of Christian books, blogs, conferences, tweets, and sermons, you would probably find that this phrase and others like it have become increasingly popular in recent, in recent years. This idea of being missional or living life on mission. And as someone who is really personally passionate about local and global missions, I am on one hand really encouraged to see more and more Christians talking and writing and thinking about what this means. But I've also begun to wonder if this concept of living life on mission has become a little bit of a cliche. You know, it's one of those phrases that as Christians we like to say, it sounds kind of catchy, it's got sort of a biblical ring to it. But I wonder sometimes, do we, do we really know what we mean by it? I mean, at the end of the day, what is the mission that we're referring to? And what exactly does it mean to live this mission out? And, and that's one of the questions that I want us to explore together this morning as we open God's Word and read a passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Because what we'll see this morning as we dive into this, passion, this passage is that each and every one of us who are followers of Jesus Christ We have been called to participate in the greatest mission the world has ever known. Every one of us. And each of us has been entrusted with the greatest message that anyone could ever share or receive. And so the real question that we have to ask ourselves this morning is, am I living out the mission that God has entrusted to me? Am I living life on mission? And so as we seek to uncover that together, would you stand with me this morning as we read 2 Corinthians chapter 5? If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we have ushers at the side who would would love to get one of those into your hands. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're gonna focus on verse 17 to 21, but let's begin reading in verse 14. Paul writes, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him who knew to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Would you pray with me this morning? Gracious Lord, we come before you this morning and we thank you so much that you have given us this space in which to gather as your people. I thank you God that we come together here as brothers and sisters in Christ as your children and we pray that as we open your word this morning God that this service of worship would only continue Lord we have sung songs and we have given of our offering we're in prayer now and we ask that as we read and study your word that that it too would be a part of our worship I ask God that you would open the eyes of, of each and every person here and you would soften our hearts so that we would see your glory in your word God that we would understand the things that you are calling us to in your word. I pray that we would leave this place having been transformed by your truth, that as James writes, we would not just be hearers of the word, but by your grace and through the strength of your spirit, God, would we be doers also. Lord, I just surrender myself to you this morning. I know that I am an empty vessel and I can do nothing apart from you, God. And so I pray that you would be with my mouth, that I would speak clearly, that God, you would, you would encourage your people through your word and through what I would share this morning. I pray that the meditations of, of my heart and the words of my lips would be pleasing to you. And we just ask you, indeed, we beg you, God, please be present here with us. We don't wanna just go through the motions. We long to be transformed by your presence, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, you can grab a seat, thank you. You know, this is such an incredibly rich text for us to jump into together, but today there are four things that I want us to see from our passage, four things as we uncover this idea of living life on mission. And indeed, what I want to suggest to you from our passage today is that if we want to be a people who live life on mission, that there are four foundational truths that we have to remember, four things. If I want to live life on mission, firstly, I need to remember this, the miracle I have a new life in Christ. I have a new life in Christ. Look again at verse 17 in our text. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. Now, I imagine that this is a verse that maybe many of us are familiar with. Maybe you've heard it many times before. But my prayer this morning is that we could approach this passage and even this verse in particular with fresh eyes and ears You know, what we need to really ask ourselves is, what does it mean to be in Christ? Paul starts off by saying, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. And so what does he mean by that? What does it mean to be in Christ? Well, if we were to sort of translate this passage into modern, everyday language, the way that we speak today, we would probably say something like, if anyone is a Christian, he or she is in Christ. But what's interesting is that as we read the New Testament we find that the earliest followers of Jesus did not initially refer to one another as Christians in fact it's in Acts chapter 11 that we learn that it's in the city of Antioch that the followers of Jesus were first called Christians not by one another but by actually the unbelievers of that city however as we read the New Testament we do find that the way that early followers of Jesus referred to one another was as those who were in Christ and so if you're here this morning and if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have trusted in him, you too are someone who is in Christ. Now, we could easily spend the rest of our time just thinking more about what that means. And I would I'd actually encourage you a great exercise as you're reading through the New Testament circle or underline in your Bible every time you see the word in Christ or in him. I think even if you just walk through Ephesians chapter one and two, you you'd probably see it, you know, 20 times in that passage alone. So much of what it means to be a Christian revolves around being in Christ. But what I want us to do is just look at two sort of core things of what it means to be in Christ. Two things, all right? If I'm in Christ, number one, I have died with Christ. I have died with him. Now, we might ask ourselves, well, what exactly does this mean? In what way have have I died with Jesus? I'm I'm here right now. I seem to be alive. Well, look up just a, a few verses in our text to verses 14 and 15 and listen again to what Paul writes. He says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Notice, and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul says that that Jesus has died for all and that those who live, that's us, that we have died with him. And what exactly does he mean by that? Well, he, He means that when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the death penalty for all who would repent and trust in him such that when God looks upon us, he does not see our old sinful life. In fact, he considers that old sinful life dead as though it too was crucified with Jesus. Now listen, that is a miracle. The miracle that I have died with Christ. And this is why Paul says in verse 17 that the old has passed away and behold, the new has come. You see, it's impossible for us to be made new creations in Christ while holding on to our old life. The the old us, it has to pass away in order to make make way for the new. To be in Christ means, firstly, that we have died with him. But notice this also. To be in Christ means that Christ lives in and through me. Christ lives in and through me. In verse 14 and 15, again, Paul says that the love of Christ now controls him. And he goes on to say that Jesus has died so that those who live so that we who live in him might no longer live for ourselves but for him who for our sake died and was raised and so just consider for a moment now the contrast that Paul is creating between our old life and the new creation the new life that we have received in Christ he says that the old life it lives for itself it is compelled by a love for self for selfish sinful desires but the new life, the new creation that we receive and we are made in Christ, it no longer lives for itself. It's no longer compelled by self-love. Rather, it lives for Jesus because it is compelled by Jesus' love. It lives for His purposes. I love how Paul sums up these two realities of what it means to be in Christ. In another passage in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, up on the screen for you here, he says, "I have been crucified with Christ." It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, Paul was so overcome by God's love and by the thought that God would send Jesus to die for him. But in response to that, Paul, he, he recognized that, listen, being a Christian didn't just mean attending a church gathering. It didn't just mean believing in Jesus. And it didn't just mean reading the Bible or praying from time to time. Paul understood that to be a Christian meant to be in Christ. It meant to be a completely new creation. It meant that his old life had died, had been crucified with Jesus. And he had now been made completely new. But notice here the significance of this. This is not just Paul version 2.0. This is not just the new Paul. Indeed, the new creation, the new life that we have received in Christ is actually the very life of Jesus himself being lived out in and through us. And so what Paul is saying is it's no longer Paul living a more moral version or a better version of his own life. It is now Jesus living Jesus' life through Paul. And so again, I want us just to consider how miraculous this really is for our own lives. If you are here today and you are in Christ, not only does God count your old, sinful, selfish life as dead, as crucified, as ended, and not only has he made you new and given you a a new life, the new life that he has given you is actually the very life of Jesus. Jesus himself living in and through you. And so this is why Paul says again in verses 14 and 15 that he has been freed from living for himself. And this really is remarkable because he's saying I don't have to be focused on myself anymore. I don't have to live a life consumed by what other people think of me, by by what I want in life or my own desires or ambitions. I mean, if we can just be honest this morning, have you come to a place where you realize that the the thrust of our culture, which is to live for your own goals, your own ambitions, your own desires, me, 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 that that is actually really dissatisfying in the end? That to live in such a way where what you are most focused on is the car you drive Or the job you work, or the house you live in, or the stuff you have, or the friends that you associate with, or what other people think about you, or how you look, that to be so focused on yourself and and even to get those things that you're seeking in yourself, that that kind of life actually leaves you feeling empty and quite frankly, exhausted. And what Paul says is that the miracle of new life in Christ is not that we're simply forgiven but that we are filled with a, a new life, the life of Jesus, that we don't have to be exhausted seeking satisfaction in living for ourselves. We can now live for God. Now the truth is, if you're like me, sometimes when I hear that, I understand that it's true, but there's a part of me that still struggles to believe that that's really what will satisfy me. I wonder why it is sometimes that we can read this text and we can believe it and other texts like it and yet we walk away feeling like we'll still really ultimately be happy if we can just kind of live for ourselves. And I'm not saying being overtly sinful, but just kind of being focused on ourselves and what we want in life. And why, why is it that we struggle with that? I think at the end of the day, it's because we still fail to believe that we really will be most happy when we live a life that is completely submitted to God and his purposes. I mean, at the end of the day, if you were to ask any person, regardless of their background, they would eventually tell you that what they really want in life is just to be happy. It's to be content. It's to be satisfied, to be secure. And I think sometimes as Christians, we almost feel awkward thinking about that because we wonder, maybe that's not something that a Christian is supposed to desire to be happy or fulfilled, but the truth is God desires that for you. Jesus himself said in, in John 10 that I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. One translation puts that I have come that they may have a rich and satisfying life. But you see, the, the issue is that that rich and satisfying life, the fulfillment that God longs for us to have, it's not found in living for ourselves. Rather, it is found in him. And so I wanna let you in then on a secret, on a secret based on the authority of God's word. I can guarantee you this morning with absolute total certainty that you will experience deeper joy deeper satisfaction and deeper fulfillment when you resign yourself for living for your own life and your own desires and you turn to Jesus and you say I have been crucified with you Jesus it's no longer I who live I want you to live your life through me now, I'm not for a moment suggesting that that life will be easier. In fact, for all likelihood, it's, it's quite likely to be harder. But I can say with complete certainty that such a life submitted to the life of Jesus living through you is the life in which you have deeper joy, deeper fulfillment, deeper satisfaction than you could ever hope to acquire when living for yourself. This is the miracle of new life in Christ. You know, we're going to spend a lot of time in in the time that remains this morning talking about the mission, the mission of God and the role that we play in that. But I really, I don't want to rush on from this place. It's so important that we begin by talking about this miracle of the new life that we have received in Jesus. And here's why, okay? The mission that we are called to, it flows from the miracle, If we don't understand this miracle, if we don't firstly root ourselves in our new identity, in our new life in Christ, then we simply will not and cannot hope to live life on mission. We need to remember the miracle that we have been made new in Christ. Look with me at verse 18 in our passage and notice the two components that Paul has in this statement. He says all of this is from God who, number one, through Christ reconciled us to himself. There's the new life. But notice, number two, and who gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He has reconciled us to himself in Christ and he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. And so, so you see it how the mission flows from the miracle The mission, which is what Paul calls the ministry of reconciliation. But what exactly does he mean by that? Well, that that brings us to point number two. If I want to live life on mission, firstly, I must remember the miracle, I have a new life in Christ. And then secondly, I need to remember the mission, God is reconciling the world to himself. Look at the first half of verse 19 with me. Paul says, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses, their sins against them. And so here in this small little portion of this verse, Paul describes for us the mission of God, the mission of God. So just pause for a moment, look up here, right? Newsflash, God is on a mission. He is. Our God is on a mission. And listen, it is a mission that extends from creation to the end of history, it's a mission that extends from Genesis to Revelation, and Paul here in this passage, he describes that mission as God reconciling the world to himself. I want us to think a little minute more about what this means. The, the word reconcile, one dictionary defines it this way, as to restore to right or friendly relationship to restore to right or friendly relationship. And so let's just imagine for a moment that you have two close friends. Maybe they've grown up together. They're super close. But something takes place in their friendship that causes them to be separated from one another. Maybe one deeply hurts or offends the other. And as a result, they're estranged for a period of time. They're not on speaking terms. They don't interact with one another. They're completely separated. Until either one or both of these friends decides enough is enough. We need to settle this matter. And they come together together And one humbly acknowledges their wrong and and asks the other to forgive them. And the offended party extends grace and, and love to that person and they choose to forgive one another and put that matter behind them. But listen, they don't just put the matter behind them, then they come back together as friends, right? They restore one another to the friendship they once had. They are reconciled to one another. And so then consider, with this understanding of reconciliation in mind, Paul says, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself Not counting their trespasses against them. You see, the story of the Bible, if we were to unfold it together, it tells us that when God created human beings, he didn't do so because he was bored or lonely or because he was in need. Rather, God created human beings with a desire to share himself. God has always been perfectly satisfied in himself, and from eternity past, the Father, Son, and Spirit have existed in this perfect relationship of love, and it's out of the overflow of the love that they shared together that they created human beings with the goal that they would live to glorify God, to glorify him in the context of this beautiful, satisfying relationship with him and with one another. But you see, the great tragedy of humankind is that instead of honoring and giving thanks to this good and gracious God, every one of us has rejected him and his design for our lives. If you think back with me to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve first ate of the forbidden tree, they were essentially saying in that moment, God, we do not need you and we do not want you to rule over us. We want to be in control. We want to decide for ourselves what is good and evil. We want to be our own God's. And the Bible describes that act of rebellion against God as sin. And you see, the undeniable reality is that each and every one of us has sinned against God by rejecting him in like measure. We all do this in different ways. But at the end of the day, when we examine our lives, we recognize that in one way or another, we have rejected God's design. We've rejected his rule. And we've said, I want to do life on my terms, my way, my rules, God. Instead of worshiping the God who made us, we make idols out of things like money and material possessions and relationships and power and we chase after these things and in the process, we do things like lie and cheat and steal and lust and envy and gossip and hate and even murder. And the consequence, just like Adam and Eve, that we experience from this is separation from God. And listen, that means death, Because for dependent human beings to be separated from the author of life means that they necessarily embrace death. But listen, not just death physically, death spiritually, death relationally in terms of an eternal separation from God in hell as the just penalty of our rebellion. But you see the unfathomably incredible story of redemption is that this God whom we sinned against has not abandoned us in the midst of our rebellion and the consequences that it has incurred. When God created the world, his goal was to build this this kingdom, this beautiful kingdom, where people everywhere would live under his rule and blessing in relationship with him. And although we rejected that design, our sin did not disqualify. It did not put an end to God's purposes in the world. In the face of our rejection, God sent out, set out, rather, listen, on a rescue mission, on a rescue mission to reconcile to himself the very people who had rejected him. But how would he do this? How would he accomplish this rescue mission? Paul says that it's in Christ that God was reconciling the world to himself. The mission of God is fulfilled by none other than Jesus. Consider just for a moment what is probably, I'd imagine, the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What is that verse saying? That God looked upon a world full of brokenness, full of people who were still actively rejecting and sinning against him, and yet, in the midst of all of that, in his love, He sent Jesus into this world to deal with this problem of sin. That Jesus, when he died and rose again, he created a way for us to be reconciled to the Father, to be restored to relationship with God. And what's amazing is that Scripture tells us that this work of reconciliation that Jesus has fulfilled, it does not only have implications for our personal relationship with God, it has implications for every area of our life and of creation. And God has actually promised that one day Jesus himself will return and he will return to fully and completely establish his kingdom in a new creation where all things will be made new. This is the mission that God is on. This is the mission of God to reconcile the world to himself. Now, at this point, we might be wondering, okay, I'm tracking with you, Lucas, story of the Bible, God's mission, but what does that have to do with with me The whole thrust of this sermon is that we have a new life and a new mission in Christ but how does my mission relate to everything that we've discussed so far well this brings us then to point number three we need to remember the miracle we need to remember the mission and now we need to remember this the means the means God is making his appeal through us what I want us to see this morning is that as people who have been reconciled to God by trusting in Jesus, by being filled with this new life, our mission now is to participate in God's mission to reconcile the world to himself. Our mission is to participate in God's mission to reconcile the world to himself. We could could phrase it this way. Listen, the mission is from God, it is fulfilled in Jesus, and it is accomplished through us. The mission is from God, it's fulfilled in Jesus, and now it is being accomplished through us. Look at what Paul says. We'll again start in verse 18. He says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and then notice, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and notice, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Paul says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And so do you see what Paul is saying in this text? He says that God has made us new creations, he's reconciled us to himself, but then He's now entrusted us with the ministry of reconciliation. He has given us the message of reconciliation. You see, when Jesus came and lived among us, when he died on the cross and rose from the grave, he fulfilled the mission of God. That is, he did everything that was required to deal with God's wrath and to create a way for people to be reconciled to God. But here's the thing, when you read the Bible, we soon realize that although the mission of God was fulfilled in Jesus, the mission of God is not yet over. It's still going on today. And, and, you know, really when we think about it, that probably shouldn't be too much of a surprise to us because if the mission was completely finished with Jesus, then what's the point of the last sort of 2,000 years of history that have gone on since then? If everything was wrapped up with Jesus, why are we still going about life here? You know, see, Jesus himself, before his ascension, he made it very clear that there was going to be a delay before he returned again. And the purpose of that delay, the purpose of the time in which we here ourselves are living is to allow the message of reconciliation to spread to people everywhere so that men and women, young and old, from every tribe and nation and tongue can be reconciled to God God is building his kingdom. But I want us to notice, don't miss this, how is he doing it? How is this message of reconciliation supposed to spread to people everywhere? Paul says, through us. God is making his appeal through us. In other words, you and I are the means by which God has chosen to accomplish his mission. Just let that sink in for a second. You and I here in Ottawa, We are the means by which God is accomplishing his mission here in this city and to the ends of the earth. Now I want to be clear, it's important that we remember that God does not need us to accomplish his mission. If he wanted to, he could accomplish the mission without us, and so this is the part that actually blows my mind. God does not need us, but he has chosen to use us. God does not need us to accomplish his mission of reconciling the world to himself, but he has chosen to use us. Do you see what an incredible privilege that is? That God would want to involve us in this, that he would want to call us to take part in the work that he is doing. The God of the universe is on a mission to reconcile people everywhere to himself, and he has entrusted the the fulfillment, the accomplishment, the finishing of that mission to us. Do you see what an incredible responsibility this is? It is a great privilege and yet it is also a great responsibility. And so in response to our text, what I have to ask each of us this morning, including myself, is this. What are you doing with the message of reconciliation that has been entrusted to you? Just think about your own life today. What are you doing with the message of reconciliation that the God who saved you has now entrusted to you? Listen to what Jesus has to say in Matthew chapter 28 on the screen for you here. This passage again records some of the final words of Jesus before his ascension. We often refer to it as the Great Commission. We talk about it a lot here at Harvest. It's in our mission statement, right? And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so again, in Jesus' words, we find that as followers of Christ, We have been invited, indeed, we have been commanded to participate in the mission of God by making disciples of all nations. And and what is a disciple? What is a follower of Christ? Well, it is first and foremost someone who has been reconciled to God, someone who has heard and responded to the message of reconciliation, And so, the way in which we we fulfill the Great Commission by making disciples starts with being faithful with the message of reconciliation, calling others to repent and trust in Jesus. And so, we can ask ourselves a similar question in response to this passage How are we responding today to Jesus' command to make disciples? Notice that that Jesus does not call this the Great Suggestion. We call it the Great Commission because it's, it's an imperative command. Go and make disciples. You know, one of the greatest tragedies that I believe is impacting the church in North America today is that we have either forgotten or maybe in some cases we have deliberately ignored the fact that each and every one of us has been called to participate in the mission of God by making disciples. Somewhere along the way, we got it in our head that the job of making disciples is reserved for pastors, elders, missionaries, and other certain kind of crazy Christians that have particular gifts and particular passions, right? But for the average Christian, that's not really our job. But listen, that's not in the Bible. Jesus says that if you are in Christ, you have been entrusted with the message of reconciliation. You have been called to make disciples, to participate in God's mission. I love how Paul describes himself and and, and by extension each of us who are in Christ in this passage. He says that we are ambassadors for Christ. You know, and here we are in our nation's capital in Ottawa, plenty of ambassadors coming and going from this very city. So pause for a moment and just think about in the realm of global politics, what is the role of an ambassador? Well, imagine for a moment that I was the Canadian ambassador to France, okay? If that was my job title and description, my role would be to represent the interests, the platform, the message of the Canadian government, and I would be sent to France as a representative of that government, and my job would be to communicate the message and the platform and the ideas of the Canadian government to the French government and the people of France. That is my job. I'm an official representative of my sending nation of Canada. And in like manner, Paul says in this passage, each one of us are ambassadors for Christ. God is sending us out into a broken world, and he is appealing to that world through us be reconciled to Christ. And so, another question for you to consider this morning where has God sent you to be his ambassador? Where has he sent you to be his ambassador? You see, another one of the misconceptions that we've given way to is thinking that the, the work of God's mission is something, something that takes place on a foreign mission field, deep in a jungle somewhere or, or off in a savanna or something like that. But the truth is, so long as we are surrounded by people who don't know Jesus, the mission of God, it is right here. Now, that said, I wanna be very clear. I, I pray that God would be so good and so gracious as to raise up many men and women, young and old, from this body, Lord willing, from this room, who would say, I will surrender and forsake the comforts of life here, and I will go to the nations. You know, right here as we gather so freely this morning in this place, there are an estimated two billion men, women, and children who remain completely unreached by the gospel. That means that there is no indigenous Christian community in their region that is able to reach them with the gospel. Many of these men and women have literally never met a Christian before. They may have never even heard of the name or the person of Jesus. And God is calling us, he is sending us out to these nations to be his ambassadors. And I pray that God would raise up from Harvest Ottawa men and women who would be sent By the rest of us who stay here To proclaim the message of reconciliation there But listen I recognize that for the majority of us That may not be the calling That God has placed on our lives But that does not mean That you are not an ambassador for Christ It does not mean that God has sent you any less Or that your sending is any less important Or any less official Consider on your your campuses In your school In your workplace The street that you live on, the neighbors that are around you, your grocery store, the places that you spend time during the week. This is your mission field. This is the place that God has sent you to be his ambassador. God wants to make his appeal to the people who are around you through you. Are you letting him do that? Are you letting God make his appeal through you? Are you participating in the mission of God? Or are you disobeying Jesus' command to make disciples? You know, perhaps if you're like me and you you study a passage like this long enough, you walk away feeling convicted to recognize that my life does not always reflect a commitment to make disciples or to be faithful with the message of reconciliation. But I just wanna be so clear that the goal today is not to drop some kind of heavy weight or burden upon any of us. The goal here is not that we read this passage and that we walk out of this place feeling condemned, like, okay, now I've got to share the gospel with every person that I know today, otherwise I'm not being faithful to what God has called me to. Listen, God does not look upon any one of us today and say, get your act together. You've been wasting time and being unfaithful. Let's go. I've got a mission here. What are you doing? That is not the heart of the Father. What what I hope that, that, that you would understand this morning is that the heart of the Father is one that says, my child, I have reconciled you to myself. I have filled you with the very life of my son. And I have done so in order that you might join me in my mission to save other people, to reconcile other people to myself. And I've chosen to involve you in this mission, listen, because I love you. Not because I need a bunch of missionary slaves running around. No, I, I love you and I want you to experience the fullness of my power and my presence at work within you. I want your joy to be made complete as you get to invite other people to be reconciled to me just as you have. That is the heart of the Father. My hope this morning is that that many of you would be able to testify to this. But if not, you you can take my word for it or better yet, you can take God's word for it. There is no greater joy to be found than aligning your life with the mission of God the most exciting, the most life-giving moments of, of my life and experience have been the moments where I've been able to sit down with somebody, whether it's on a train or on a plane last week flying home from a, from a conference or someone in my family or a friend at school or a coworker, and just begin to talk to them about Jesus and begin to share the truth that God through Jesus has made a way for them to be reconciled to the Father and restored to the greatest purpose their life has ever been given. Can I encourage you Align your life with the mission of God. You know, it's not uncommon for for Christians, including myself, to at times say things like, you know, I feel disconnected from God. I read the Bible and I just don't feel God's presence the way it seems like the early Christians did. I, I don't feel him with me in the way that he promises. I even read Matthew 28 where Jesus says, I'll be with you always, and I don't really feel him with me all the time. And if that articulates maybe how you're feeling right now or the ways that you feel at different times, I wanna just challenge you to consider this. Is it possible that the reason we feel disconnected from God in these moments, the reason that we don't feel his presence with us is because we're not being obedient to the call to make disciples and participate in the mission of God? Listen again to the way that Jesus words this promise. He says, go therefore and make disciples disciples. And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. You see, the promise of Jesus, His presence and power, it comes alive. It is activated when we are living out the mission that He has entrusted to us. God is on a mission to reconcile people to Himself. It is from Him. It is fulfilled in Jesus, and it's accomplished through us. We need to remember this. We need to remember the miracle. We need to remember the mission, the means, but now, fourthly, lastly, this, if we want to live life on mission, we need to remember the message be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. We've talked a lot about the ministry and the message of reconciliation, but what I want us to see this morning is the way that Paul sums this up so simply for us in verses 20 and 21. He says, We implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know, this last verse, verse 21, is one of the most important verses in scripture for helping us to understand the gospel and what it is that Jesus actually did for us, what it is that he accomplished on the cross through his death and his resurrection. And the the very fancy theological term that people use to describe what Paul writes about in verse 21 is substitutionary atonement, substitutionary atonement. And, And basically what that means is that God sent Jesus into the world to die in our place as a substitute for us. That left on our own, we are condemned under the weight of our own sin, our own shame, And we deserve only to suffer God's wrath to die and be separated from him for an eternity in hell as the just penalty of our sin. But that God in his love sent Jesus who came and took our place, who bore our penalty for our sake. You see, unlike you and I, Jesus lived a perfect life. The text says that he knew no sin. The book of Hebrews describes Jesus by saying that he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus never gave way into temptation. He never lied or cheated or lusted or stole. And what's more, not only did he not do bad things, but he lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father. He always demonstrated compassion and mercy and love to the people around him. And he perfectly lived in light of God's design for how we ourselves were created to live. But what Paul is saying in this passage is that even though Jesus was perfect and we were the ones who sinfully rejected God, God sent Jesus to take upon himself our penalty. Think of even some of the songs that we sang this morning the Lamb of God in my place. The Lamb of God in my place. Your blood poured out, my sin erased. It was my death he died, and I am raised to life. Jesus dying as a substitute in our place. Why? Why would God do this? Paul says, for our sake. For our sake so that in him in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God now I'm a bit of a visual learner so I want to illustrate this Bert if you could come up just for a second here I want to show us an illustration of this verse Martin Luther once referred to this verse as the great exchange Bert if you could hold this up for a moment here alright so this black t-shirt here it's meant to represent our sin okay On our own, each and every one of us, apart from Jesus, we stand condemned under a record of our own sin. Every sinful thought, every sinful word, every sinful action, all the things that we're ashamed about, they all stand clear as day before God. And as a result of this sin, we deserve to suffer God's wrath and be separated from him for eternity. And and this white shirt, this shirt is meant to represent the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Jesus is perfect, he never sinned. He always lived in perfect obedience to the Father. And now this is meant to illustrate for us the message of reconciliation, what Paul describes in verse 21. For our sake, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin. That means that when we repent, when we trust in Jesus, when we cry out to him in saving faith and ask him to make us new, he comes to us and he takes from us this black record of sin, he takes that upon himself and he takes it with him to the cross and he dies there in our place Paul says I have been crucified with Christ our record of sin it is nailed to the cross and considered dead but notice this the great exchange is not just Jesus taking our sin upon himself bearing our wrath, God's wrath on our behalf it is him then giving to us his perfect record of righteousness and obedience So do you see what happens here? This means that if you are in Christ today, all of your sin, past, present, and future, all of your shame, it has been taken by Jesus to the cross and he has there nailed it with him and that old you, it is dead and it is no more. And now when God looks upon you, you today, when God looks upon you, he sees the perfect righteousness of his son. That means that when God looks upon you this morning, whether today is a great day for you or whether you feel like you have a list of sins you've already committed this morning, when God looks upon you, it is as though you have never sinned or disobeyed. He sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus. This is the great exchange, the message of reconciliation. Thanks, Bert. Now, you, you say in response to that, well, how exactly is that fair? How is it fair that Jesus, who is perfect and sinless, he takes my penalty And not only do I get forgiven, but I actually get his record of righteousness. How is that fair? And the truth is, it's not. It's not fair. That's what makes the gospel such incredible news, is that God does not treat us the way we deserve to be treated. He treats us as though we are his son, clothed in his righteousness. He reconciles us to himself. It's not fair, but it is this, it's love. For our sake, God looked upon us in the midst of our sin, in the midst of all of our failures, and for our sake, in love, he sent Christ to die for us so that we could be reconciled and restored to right relationship with him. And so this morning, I don't wanna make any assumptions. We may be in church, but the truth is, there may be people here this morning that have not been reconciled to God. Maybe you're hearing and you're understanding this message of reconciliation for the very first time Or maybe you have grown up in church and you have heard this many different ways a thousand times before, and yet still, you have not been reconciled to the Father. As Paul once wrote to the church in in Corinth, so also I say to you today, I implore you, I implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. If today you are here and you have not trusted in Jesus, You have not repented of your sin and turned to him in faith. If you hear his voice, I I compel you, do not harden your heart. Cry out to him in saving faith. Confess your sin. Ask God to make you new. Ask him to give you a new life and know that for every person who does that, he stands ready to rush to you with mercy and with grace and with love and listen, to clothe you in the righteousness of Jesus and to reconcile you to himself. Now for those of us who are here who have been reconciled to Christ, who can identify with that illustration, my prayer is that as we respond in worship in just a moment, that we would do so with renewed passion, with renewed awe at a God who is so gracious and so loving that he has sent his son to die for us. But I also pray that this happens that the worship that we are filled with in response to how God has made us new, that that worship translates into our being compelled to be sent out with this message of reconciliation. Listen, God has saved you. He's made you new, but he has saved you to send you. He has saved you to send you out that you might now be new in Jesus, filled with his life, empowered by his spirit, that you might be the means through which God makes his appeal to the world around you. Oh, that we hear that in Harvest Ottawa, you would be a people who are found faithful with the message of reconciliation, that you would live life on mission. Would you pray with me? Father, we stand in awe of you. There is no God like you, God, who is so gracious and so kind. Paul writes to the church in Rome saying that you demonstrated your love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father, that you are so good and so gracious as to send Jesus to come and to bear our penalty so that now we, through his death and resurrection, we can become those who are in Christ. We can become the righteousness of God. Lord, I pray that we are filled with such wonder and worship in response to this truth. And I pray that that worship leads us to be bold even in this coming week. That as we leave this place, you would be placing upon our hearts, God, I ask that even right now as we pray, that upon the heart of every person who is in Christ in this room, you would place the name, the face of someone they know that needs to be reconciled to Christ. Maybe it's a family member or a friend or a neighbor, a coworker, someone in their community. And Lord, I pray that you would would empower them to in prayer and through bold witness that you would give them opportunities to make Christ known, to share this incredible message of what you have done for us, Lord. That you would add to this church, that it would be multiplied as more and more people are made to be the righteousness of Christ and who are sent out on mission. God, we love you. We worship you. We pray that you would receive an offering of worship in response now. In your name, amen.